The thinking behind it all with Melusi Nas. The thinking behind it all. Welcome to the Thinking Behind It All. It's our fourth edition and we're all happy. I am here with what has now become the usual suspects. I've got Ricardo here, I've got Pauline, I've got Isaac, and we are also introducing a new member to the team, Andy Siwe, a fellow South African, but at the moment based in Ethiopia. Hi, Andy Siwe. Hi. Hi. From the deepest parts of Ethiopia. Sorry. <laughs> Good reason. I'm <laughs> oh, sorry, Elm. <laughs> As I've mentioned, Sounds this like is... an inside joke. <laughs> As I've mentioned, this is our fourth episode. We are quite thrilled. Thank you for the support that you've shown us thus far on our Facebook, on our Twitter. For those who have yet to join us, please do so on our Facebook page. The name to look for is The Thinking Behind It All. Our Twitter handle is at TTBIA underscore. At TTBIA underscore. Also, because people have asked us to expand on our platforms, you can now listen to us on iTunes, Google Play, and your favorite podcatcher. This week we'll be looking at the Michael Gomape story. We'll be looking at the memorial built in Alabama for the thousands of people who were lynched post-slavery. And we'll be looking, of course, at the DA in terms of what they did or are doing to Patricia DeLille. But prior to commencing with our stories, there's just something that I would like to discuss with all of you. So, the past week, the former president, Jacob Zuma, had a, had a dialogue with mostly Black First, Land First members, in which he chronicled how Black people came to be dispossessed of land in South Africa. He talked about the fact that the land discussion should not commence from 1913, but in fact, it should start from 1652 with the arrival of the Dutch. One point that stood out in that discussion was that black people definitely need to unite if they want to see tangible change. And the change that he was speaking about was for black people to attain economic power and also security because 
as he has it, there are three pillars that are important in a person's freedom. And that's political power, economic power, and security. He highlighted that black people are fragmented instead of uniting and fighting a common cause we are quick to fight each other and hence the oppressor till this day is able to take advantage of us now of course the former president's reputation is one that is quite controversial in many quarters in our society this was received with mixed messages some people were calling him out saying that he had all this time to do something about the land issue in South Africa and essentially the message from those opposed to him was that why should we take him seriously now fast forward a couple of days later on Power FM Iman Rapeti does a comment it's an introduction to a show and she talks about how black people and without saying black people need to unite fires are burning in many parts of our country people are angry hurting and frustrated old fights collide with new fights and a kind of madness prevails that makes progress precarious in the smoke of confusion progress is suffocated and when the fires are doused we find we've been standing still further back than where we started sometimes in the service of our country and her people we are each required to define and execute our country duty is it to play a leadership role where it is required to help people who are cut off from information know what they need to to organize properly to guard against the wolves of opportunism who want to hijack legitimate protest and turn the attention on something ugly they will do to undermine it beware beloved not everyone is invested in your progress not everyone wants to see you emerge in your millions from the townships informal settlements suburbs and rural areas united and focused because that is a scary thought that if finally we can speak in the voice of mutual and united progress the lone eaters of our birthrights and our futures will be very afraid that they will no longer benefit from the chaos that takes the attention off their thieving and looting ways beloved the ideals you may have held of a future in which we can all have a place in the sun is still there and it can still be ours let us think and then let us act now it was a message that essentially mirrored that of the former president but unlike the former president what happened is her message was well received my question to the panel here is that it often hits me that we will have black liberals if we can call them that or white liberal or black people who have white leanings who will make these calls for people to unite and make the right noises and these are generally received well in society compared to black leaders who are seen as radical persons by the media and i'm just wondering whether isn't this some kind of misappropriation 
of our struggle as a people. The fact that we need someone who is from a suburban area, quite affluent area in Johannesburg to come and tell the masses that you need to unite if you want to see change. And this message will be endorsed. Whereas if it's said by someone else who is not necessarily serving whiteness as such, the message is not taken on board as well as it should be. I'm going to start with Isaac and just to hear what his views are. Concerning the appropriation of the black struggle, it wouldn't be fair for Iman to be making that kind of point because the people that should unite um, are people of the majority. I think she's speaking unity in terms of this new dawn um, that was promised by Cyril. And it's not true. No, 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 is it, is it valid for me? Alicia, do you have any thoughts on this? Um, so for me, the way that I look at this, right, I don't think it's as simple as just, you know, a radical versus a whitewashed or a more acceptable black personality in white spaces. I think that, how do I put this? As much as it seems wrong for it to be just acceptable because she comes from you know an affluent background all of these things we also need to look at the reality of the spaces that we operate in and the people who actually have this power and sometimes it takes someone who is more acceptable in these spaces to say the same thing that someone else has said for it to be heard properly ricardo what are your thoughts <clears throat> i think that with any struggle, any situation like that, there's different facets of it, right? You have your more moderates who are looking for change, and you have people who are more progressive looking for change, right? And I think the two work in concert with one another to affect said change. Because the progressives usually move the moderates off their comfort zone just enough to get what's needed or what's wanted in the situation. Um, Pauline, what are your thoughts? Um, I agree, because when you're fighting a cause, a white person can sometimes put something across on behalf of a black person, and it's well meant, but it only means something if that person is consistent within supporting black people. Isaac, hearing the unanimous view about what Iman has done, don't you think we run the risk of misdirecting our struggle so in other words we have someone who's not really okay with values that are orientated with our struggle and who is more moderate in terms of how they view um white people and white ideology so we're talking liberalism for example so don't you think it puts our struggle at risk having someone like iman speak on such issues of us uniting she's speaking from a position of privilege herself and it creates this thing that you can only be heard if you are at a certain level of education of understanding your politics your current affairs and all of those things I don't think it truly helps the rural child in Eastern Cape or, or, or KZN having someone creating the perception that we need to have the standard for, for people to, to express their ideas.
and you see what don't you think there's credence to what isaac is saying in terms of look at how our post-democratic society has unfolded we find ourselves so fragmented yes largely it's because of apartheid but aren't we still serving that agenda where white people are classing us as this is the kind of black we want to deal with the other one not so much i mean i what you're saying and i think it takes a certain level of consciousness um from us as black people to understand that this is the situation that we're facing right that um and you see your views are taken on a lot more easier because of the fact that you went to xy school and you are speaking english so well you know what i mean like um it takes me being conscious of this white gaze that i shouldn't perform for the white gaze you know what i mean but i need to also play the system and use my strengths and in inverted commas what they view as strengths to still push the struggle forward so i, I feel like it's it's an unfair punishment and an unfair thing to say that iman cannot speak on this because she's also black as much as she might not be struggling right now she might have family that is struggling through these things she knows people who are struggling firsthand through these very same issues that we are facing i i, I was basing my point on her ideological stance she's more egalitarian i'm just saying even the language she's speaking in it's not to reach people of her demographic we know that predominantly colored people speak uh, afrikaans but she's speaking in english she's appealing to a certain type of black person it's like she's saying listen to me it's like she's saying listen to my voice, voice yeah, but mine, not the people mine mine is, is more important yeah 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 and that's, yes that's, that's yeah and that's yeah. my my dissent with with her yeah. specifically speaking ricardo in closing what are your views i just want to preface this by saying i am far removed from the situation and there's nuances that i am undoubtedly missing right but to to go back on what isaac just said as an outsider listening to two south african men speak are you two the common south african man black man because that's what it does sound like either described like she's talking to you guys <laughs> i'd say she is trying to appeal the likes of me however let me explain it like this i am not likely to follow suit because i understand the politics and i understand that she's speaking this on a platform that i don't necessarily agree with i don't view power fm as much as it says that it serves black people it's there to amplify the voices of black people i think in many ways they have sold out so already i'm not going to resonate with a message like that but there are those who are perhaps and i'm not trying to sound elitist when i say this who have not made that discernment who still view power fm as a platform for black people but if anything it's a platform that is aspiring to be just like the sister radio station which is 702 predominantly white market driven and basically about white liberal values This is the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, Alabama, a site dedicated to the more than 4,000 victims of lynching in America. 
you know, we started the research years ago, and then the monument started to come. And when they arrived, I think the thing that completely blew me away that I hadn't just thought about before was sort of seeing these names. He is Brian Stevenson, a lawyer who founded the Equal Justice Initiative, or EJI, an organization with a long and powerful record of getting more than 100 people off of death row, of fighting for juveniles with life sentences, and of winning cases that went as high as the Supreme Court. Even in the names, you see stories like this is an entire family that's killed in, in Tattnall County, Georgia. And those stories are everywhere. Elizabeth Lawrence lynched in Birmingham, 1933. School teacher coming home, she was walking and a bunch of white kids started throwing stones at her. Mm -hmm. And like any good teacher, she said to these kids, don't throw stones at people. They went home and told their parents that they had been chastised by a black woman, that parents were outraged. They organized a mob, they went to her home and they lynched her. The memorial and a nearby museum that connects slavery, lynching, Jim Crow, and mass incarceration open on April 26th. And some people might find it difficult to make the connection between slavery and mass incarceration might be a difficult leap for mm -hmm. some people. Well, and I don't think people should leap. I think it's a continuum. I think this is an important memorial to go up to highlight and to remind the nation of the treatment that uh, black people have gone through since slavery in the 1600s all the way to even modern day. Pauline, do you think in light of this memorial, does America deserve a pat on the back considering what's been happening with black lives in general? Do they deserve a pat on the back? No, they don't. The, the memorial is a good thing. Well, overall, did the, does America deserve a, pa a pat on the back? No, because they still have a long way to go to being fair. Ambisi, I want to know from you, South Africa has a similar memorial when you look at the apartheid museum. Do such structures or the way that we capture moments in history, especially in relation to black people, do they have any significance in making progress in our lives? Definitely no. I think that it's great to have these memorials, but the thing is we don't actually have conversations about these things all the time. So that's why you find people saying things like, oh, slavery happened so long ago, let go of it. The lynching happened however many years ago, let go of it. Apartheid was 24 years ago, let go of it. So for me, it's just, I feel like the memorial is great, it's there, but we're not actually having real conversations about what happened. So people don't actually understand the, the magnitude of the things that have happened to black bodies and black people throughout time. It's totally different if you look at the Holocaust in Germany. People cannot just take it as if it was nothing. Whereas things that have happened to black people throughout time are just taken as if it's, it's past. It's not something that still affects us in our daily lives today. And it still does. Ricardo, the fact that this memorial is in Alabama, the heart of racism, 
when you look at America. Do you think there's an opportunity for there to be earnest discussions on race issues and what happened historically? First, I think there's going to be a lot of Alabamans very mad with you. <laughs> very upset, but I won't disagree with your presumption that Alabama has definitely been on the wrong side of history, culturally, socially speaking, to this point. But I think this kind of memorial does. Um, so to answer that, I'm going to sort of disagree with Andy Seaway here. I believe that these types of memorials, just like the Holocaust memorials and museums, I don't think it's about us right now. But as children go to these exhibits and schools incorporate more teaching that highlights the unjust treatment of black people, I think that's where a memorial and museums like the apartheid museum that you mentioned comes into play. So just to rewind the clock, after World War II, the world saw what happened in the concentration camps. But it was because Jewish communities refused to make people forget about what happened to them that we speak about it the way we do today. And I think this follows in that blueprint. Isaac, taking from what Ricardo is saying that it may not be for our current generation, but when you look at how other struggles are memorialized, pointing case, the Jewish Holocaust, should we accept that as black people that our stories are not to be told right now or we should think of them as stories that will have more of an impact at a later stage? Beyond us just having these type of memorials, we should also include black people in the conversation when we're going to build these type of memorials. I think the outcry is because our history isn't told, whether it's good or bad. Here in South Africa, we have an Afrikaner Voortrekker monument, and it documents the killing of black people. But obviously, it's always told by the victors. It's for the victors. So I think more inclusion for black people when you make these type of uh, these kind of monuments. Paulina, are you in, in agreement with that? Yes, I think we should definitely always be included as black people when doing these memorials. With a little bit of tongue-in-cheek, Andisiwe, earlier we discussed the appropriation of a struggle and now the sentiment at least seems to be that black people should be front and center when it comes to making these memorials. Can you tell us what makes this different? statement i don't think i necessarily said black people don't have to be front and center i just said i feel like it's unfair to exclude certain types of black people because for me iman is a person of color she is someone who has privilege yes because she's educated and all these things but she also when she faces the world she's seen as a woman of color she's not seen as a white woman so i don't necessarily think that there's a difference between what i felt before what I'm feeling now and what I'm saying now. And should black people be front and center of these initiatives? Yes. Definitely, but I also feel like I agree with what Isaac has said. Like, as much as we should be front and center in these initiatives, we also need to, I don't know, maybe I'm adding on to what he said. He might not have actually said this, but 
it's not just about these memorials it's about including this in the curriculum i mean if you look at how apartheid is taught in the curriculum of south africa there isn't much depth in there you know what i mean kids don't know who steve biko is they don't know a lot around what actually happened during apartheid um so as much as a memorial is great you have to actually do something substantial as well on the side so that these discussions and these changes can actually happen Ricardo, does the education system in America chronicle the lives and the struggle of black people the way it deserves, according to you? No, absolutely not. And that is the biggest reform as far as education and cultural education in the United States goes. That That's the biggest issue I have of it. And I said, as a person who studies history, love history, loves learning different cultures, um, Black culture in the United States is often not thought as as a culture at all. So it, it, it starts like this. This is pretty much what you see in textbooks in the United States. Black people were slaves. There was a war. Black people were no longer slaves. But black people were still treated bad. Then Martin Luther King had a march, said a speech, had a dream, and now everyone's happy. That's kind of like... That's how it goes here. And people have been marching to this tune for the last 50 years. And I'm like, there's so much more to the story. Uh, uh, Speaking for myself, I can't even remember any true discussion of black history in the United States until I went to university. Um, Pauline, though, is it maybe us being naive and too idealistic trying to say that the education system should actually address our history in the manner that Ricardo and Andisiwe are advocating for because at the moment there's no depth. Won't white people who are essentially in control of the system see that as a threat? Well, yeah, because that's why it's not done. The only time, even here, you learn the basics about slavery, about the slaves being captured, being bought and sold and so on. And after that, if you want to know anything more, you've got to pay. You've got to go to for higher education and pay to learn about the history of black people. And it's wrong. it's, It's just so wrong. All children should be taught about black history from the time you, you know, from the time you go to primary school, right up until you go to secondary school, and then, therefore, if you want to carry on into higher education, you you have that choice. Isaac, do you have anything to add? When such monuments are made, it would be beneficial for our people to also want to start to tell their story and find out their story as well. Because I think the Holocaust Museum is done by Jewish people to remind the world. I think we don't take enough time to do research on wars across history where black people were killed viciously and it's up to us actually to start to tell our story. And you see, my question to you is, Is that a fair expectation to have on a people that are still downtrodden in many respects? People are hungry, people are frustrated and still subjugated in many ways. 
can we really expect people to invest a lot of time and resources trying to remember or to understand what happened in the history is it fair i don't know but what i do think is that if that work is done it will propel us in the right direction i think that it will not only make other people aware of the things that we've gone through but also just bring us to a level of consciousness where we try and elevate ourselves sometimes i feel like not being aware of the things that we've been through has also led to the divide that we have even across like class so basically what i'm trying to say is that if the child who grew up in santon who's had everything all her life actually understands fully and is conscious of where black people come from and the things that we've been through i think they'll be able to empathize and work with the child who lives in limpopo who's in the far you know what i mean like sometimes i find that black people of privilege tend to look down on other black people and tend to want to dissociate themselves from it but once you understand that we all come from this thing and the struggle and maybe i've made it out of it because my parents have made it out of it 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 brings a level of unity amongst us quick update on the wind the relationship between this country and the west indies and caribbean is inextricable the first british ships arrived in the caribbean in 1623 and despite slavery despite colonization 25,000 Caribbeans served in the first world war and second world war alongside British troops. When my parents and their generation arrived in this country under the Nationality Act of 1948, they arrived here as British citizens. It is inhumane and cruel for so many of that Windrush generation to have suffered so long in this condition and for the Secretary of State only to have made a statement today on this issue. Can she explain how many have been deported? She suggested earlier that she would ask the High Commissioners. It is her department that has deported them. She should know the number. Can she tell the House how many have been detained as prisoners in their own country? Can she tell the House how many have been denied health under the National Health Service? How many have denied pensions? How many have lost their jobs? This is a day of national shame and it has come about because of a hostile environment policy that was begun under her Prime Minister. Let us call it as it is. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. And that is what has happened. Amber Rudd needs to go. She is the Home Secretary and she was called to Parliament this week to answer for her misdoings. She first claimed that there were no targets set in chasing illegal immigrants. Well, I'm sorry, whether you are seeking to get immigrants out of the country, whether it's local or at a national level, it's wrong. You've got a lot of people who have lived underground for many years because they haven't had their papers. Now, Amber Rudd is saying... First, I will waive the citizenship fee for anyone in the Windrush generation who wishes to apply for citizenship. This applies to those who have no current documentation and also to those who have it. 
Second, I will waive the requirement to carry out a knowledge of language and life in the UK test. Third, the children of the Windrush generation who are in the UK, most cases are British citizens. However, where that is not the case, they need to apply for naturalisation. This all started under Theresa May's watch when she was Home Secretary and she was Home Secretary for seven years. So as much as people are saying neither of them knew anything of this, they knew. As it's gone on, Amber Rudd has had to take the knock on effect of everything so that Theresa May can just stay in her job because in reality the two of them should go. Ricardo, don't you think this is a cosmetic fix to a very serious problem? I look at it in the short term and not the long term kind of view. So in the short term, I think they're going about it the right way. Now, are they going about it for the right reasons? That's a whole other discussion. But specifically for the Windrush generation, I think they are at least they're saying the right things and let's see if they actually follow through on their words. Long term, I think this is one of those cautionary tales to, to show that uh, there's nothing scary in the world than white people who are in power. Nationalism, jingoism, xenophobia, these are all fallback talking points. And, and to me, this is a part of the whole uh, portion of the Brexit um, get people who don't look like us out, but they just picked the wrong people to start with. Isaac, don't you think this pretty much typifies the actions of the English in terms of how they deal with injustices? You know, you look at South Africa, now and again they'll throw money at us just to resolve an issue that is actually rooted in racism this is not just for the uk i'd say the us as well have this thing of sort of um yeah let's just throw money at it and it'll go away that sort of attitude about issues pertaining to people of color it's a part-time fix to a broader issue last week when Pauline spoke about this she had also mentioned that people were losing houses okay i want to ask Pauline, like the the compensation will it ever reach these families they will pay these people individual compensation they will pay because they have lost a lot you, you know you've lost your home you're sick and you can't get no national health care you know you've got to find money to pay you can't go to a dentist you were working one day and because you've been asked to produce your documents you can't work you can't claim your pension no they have to give these people the, the money um ricky i just want to know from you what ideally would be the response we should have from our people with regards to the situation what should we be lobbying for beyond merely application fees being wavered and us not having to write tests to prove whether we qualify to be among the elite English people of this world. Well, I do think there needs to be some 
actual immigration legislation protecting not necessarily people from getting in, but the people who are there already, uh, legally or illegally. I think just as human beings, we all have certain rights, although the United States doesn't have any such legislations. It's just kind of lip service. But I think once you're in a place, you know, and you've become a productive member of society, you remember, even if you're in a country illegally, and you've got a family, you work, although you don't pay taxes or pay into a system, you're still a part of the community. You still buy things. You're, you're still a part of the economy. And your kids are going to go to school and they'll eventually pay taxes or whatever. So I think there should be some leniency to these individuals who are already here. As far as testing and and paying of fees i don't know so i myself am an immigrant right so my family might immigrated to the united states um from jamaica and we had to do it you know we paid thousands essentially thousands of dollars to be here so i do feel some way once a person says oh no i just walked on past the border and <laughs> here i am i'm like you know <laughs> um isaac legislative reform is that something that we should be looking at when we want to respond to this in a meaningful way as black people uh, yeah 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 always always in countries that are empowered by documents such as constitutions that have certain ideals and and want to adhere to the rule of law yeah definitely if we can have um policies that look at specific groups of society in terms of injustices that have happened to them and in trying to redress that i think yeah the law is necessary this week i looked at uh, michael komape case this is about a five-year-old child who died in limpopo by falling into a pit latrine the ruling has left many shattered. Judge Miller has ordered the department to provide the court with a plan on school sanitation in Limpopo by the end of July. A list containing names and locations of schools in rural areas using pit toilets must also be compiled. In a ruling that took under five minutes, the judge did not provide reasons for dismissing the claim. First and second respondents are ordered to supply and install at each rural school currently equipped with pit latrines in the province of Limpopo with one, a sufficient number of toilets for each school for the use of children which are easily accessible, secure and safe and which provide privacy and promote health and hygiene based on an assessment of the most suitable safe and hygienic sanitation technology. The Department of Education has acknowledged the ruling and says plans to eradicate pit toilets at schools are already underway. The task that the judge has said we need to do is what we had already been uh, directed to do by the president. The president had said that we needed to put together an audit, uh, do an audit of all the pit latrines, of the schools that have pit latrines, and uh, give him a plan of how these were going to be eradicated. And that work is uh, almost complete. Advocacy Group Section 27 says they are considering an appeal. 
We are disappointed with the judgment. Uh, one of the things that we had hoped to get was general damages for the Kamape family, and unfortunately this was dismissed by the judge. Uh, we had also hoped for constitutional damages or development of the common law in the amount of two million. This unfortunately was also dismissed by the judge, and instead a structural incident was put in place um, to basically ensure that there was an order done and toilets are fitted with uh, safe toilets. Um, this is a disappointing judgment and obviously in principle uh, we still need to go through the judgment quite thoroughly and consult with the family but it is very likely in principle that we're looking to appeal this judgment. But what this actually showed was that the judicial system in terms of common law isn't clear enough in terms of negligence uh, where where minors have died it's very vague and it's it's left to a balance of probabilities and that's the real issue here it's, it's, it seems like the judicial system here in south africa is not transformed in terms of minors so we'll have rights for children and and rights in schools but we don't have clear uh, policy and lawmakers that can set precedent to change the common law language about uh, such claims because claims are, are handled under delictual law and it's a different way into uh, a criminal prosecution. Ricky, as someone who is not in South Africa and you're hearing about a child dying because he fell into a pet latrine there was no sanitation and the family is not compensated for their loss what do you make of this i find it a bit startling i understand there are rural places in the world right but i just look at south africa and their resources and i don't see why any child should have to use a pit latrine at school i believe that on a whole from just from what i understand of south african economics and their and you know their gdp and such that i believe that every school should at least have indoor plumbing i mean that's just a basic health issue in my opinion as well as assuring the safety of your children when you send them off to school uh these are things that i think that, that should be paramount for for any country <laughs> I mean, I, I'm so annoyed. I, I can't even speak. I, it, it's just wrong. Um, it's wrong. They should do better. Pauline, what do you make of this situation? I think it's really sad. Um, like Ricardo said, I think it's, you know, it's basic to have running water, you know, a sink with running water and actual toilet. <laughs> It seems as though no one really wants to take responsibility for what's happened to this little boy and then to turn around and say, you know, they're not going to pay out so much compensation because it's going to take away resources from those children. Well, okay, be sure to build proper toilets, facilities, sanitation facilities for these children. Isaac, don't you think it's rather peculiar for a judge to say the government should now be held to it that they need to build these toilets whereas it's something that had to be done are we supposed to be be grateful for such a finding 
I don't think so. There's, uh, there's nothing to be grateful about this judgment, even from the point of view of claims. Th this was an opportunity for a judge to change um, the law surrounding minors that die due to negligence on the part of government. Government has rules for schools in terms of schools should have working toilets that are clean and safety should be like a huge issue in school but for a child to fall down a pit latrine and for them only to to try and, and negotiate before it's not progressive for our country at all and so do you think it's the best that we can come up with under these circumstances to say fix the toilets it's mandatory for you to do so even though you knew as the government it should have been done before I don't necessarily think it's the best um, judgment or the best that could have come out of the situation. Um, I think the government really dropped the ball on this. Like Isaac said, by law, the schools should be safe. It's important to have a safe environment for children, you know what I mean? And I think that the school itself also got off a little bit easy because kids are not supposed to go unattended even when they go to the toilets there should be a teacher who's around on playground duty who could have heard that the child fell into the toilet so i think there's a lot of spaces and places where you see that schools that are for children of color are not yet meeting the standards the basic standards that they should really be at isaac do you view this as a systemic problem or as a human problem in terms of how we apply things is the system serving our needs as black people or is it just the people that don't know how to utilize the system it's a mixture of both for me and i don't think we're at a level where we are all politically aware of systems of government how the law works and how society is organized and also it is a systemic problem in that white judges they they fought this groupthink perspective where they think fixing government is where we we fix the issues for the majority but the, the private sector also uh, uh, contributes in, in such things uh, when 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 contractors build such schools it's it's usually like big established white companies and they think uh, this the, the level that we should be at is pit latrines for, for, for children. Ricardo, in closing, where do you think South Africa should head after such a case? How do we fix such a situation from an outsider's perspective? You know, I think that an incident like this should cause the South African government to reevaluate all the schools within the country and create a certain standard of if it's not already there, if the standard is there already, then the standard needs to be enforced. I'm not saying that children should be sipping from gold fountains, keep in mind. I'm just saying there should be a basic level of sanitation and safety where a person can send their child to be educated and be confident that they'll come home safe and sound. Cape Town Mayor Patricia DeLille is fighting for her political life. 
Yesterday, the DA caucus used the party's new recall clause to support a motion of no confidence in her. Delil now has until Tuesday to make representations on why she shouldn't resign. Up next, we speak to the DA's deputy chairperson of federal council, Natasha Mazzoni, who's joining us. Thank you so much for joining us, Natasha. Before we get into the discussion, let's get to that contentious issue about this clause uh, that some have dubbed the Delil clause, not applying retrospectively. Take a listen to uh, what your leader, Musa Mayamane, said when this clause was adopted. It's applicable because it's in our constitution, it's applicable immediately. But it's not retrospective. I was once sit back and say, well, the sins here. We start now and we say for a public rep in a particular area, if we discover and we exercise that, and the clause also strengthens the power of caucuses. To say if a caucus has lost confidence in a particular individual, then it is the party that can in fact request that the person re resign within 48 hours. So Natasha, it's a matter of confidence, uh, the, the caucus, whether the caucus has confidence in its leader or not. What are the cogent, coherent and uh, valid reasons that your caucus gave you uh, to, to move this motion of no confidence? Well, firstly, I'd like to start off by saying that um, it is the uh, right of the of the um, any caucus to to let the federal executive know that they have lost confidence in any member of the executive, and that's why it is in fact an accountability clause that was introduced into our constitution, and it's so terribly important that political parties have something like the accountability clause because it allows you to hold executive members to account should they fail in your party's view in their duties in executing their duties in, and being accountable to the public. What the Auditor General found when investigating a, a claim that there might be some maladministration and, cor and corruption coming from the, the mayor's office. Apparently she withheld information as well from her caucus in Cape Town. For me it's, it's basically about they're punishing her because of some of, some of the political choices she's made as mayor first was around the water crisis issue in cape town where they didn't believe she she, she handled it to the standard of the party second has to do for, for me i'd say it, it's it's about the memorial she attended in Branford when mama Winnie passed away she she's recently come back on social media she's trying to advocate that she's being targeted by the DA. I received thousands of messages today from ordinary Kryptonians and that to me what is important. I expected this to happen tonight but this is just the beginning of another round for a fight and as I said I'm always ready for a fight and I will fight for fairness, I will fought for the freedom in this country so really we will just go on Tonight what happened was really that people made a lot of untested allegations against me. No, not backed up by facts, nothing. And I asked them one specific question. That in terms of that, the low clause, the recall clause adopted by the DA Congress, that the vote of no confidence should be based on what happened after the Congress from the 9th of April onwards. But they brought up a whole lot of old stuff and definitions and whatever the case may be. 
I made notes of all of that. She, she's looking at this thing as, as a boxing match. The analogy that I use, that this fight that I'm having with the Democratic Alliance is like a boxing fight. Oh you win one round, you lose one round. But in the end, what is important is who, who's going to get the knock. when she does come out for me she never really speaks to the issues that surround the allegations it's always just she's being targeted so uh, i'm interested into uh how this is gonna play out and see uh, does this come as a surprise to us to see that the da caucus in cape town has now decided that patricia has to go is it really surprising um no I don't think it's a surprise. I think that as much as Patricia DeLille has sang the song of the DA and sort of tried to align herself with like the political views and the, the sort of the policies that they have, she's a pan-Africanist at the end of the day. I mean, she was part of PAC, if I'm not mistaken, right? And even when you look at some of the... Um, the allegations, the reasons behind, I mean, the water crisis, the water crisis in Cape Town is not a recent thing. I don't think it's from her four years that she's been, I think that it's been long coming. It's, it's not a new issue that just arose now. And in terms of her attending the EFF Memorial, I mean, what was she supposed to do? She is a woman of color. Winnie Mandela is a woman of color who has done so much for the country in terms of the liberation. And Patricia DeLille herself has done so much for the country in terms of liberation. So I'm not really surprised that this was, it was, it, it was long coming. It was, it was going to happen at some point. I mean, if you look at how they've also, how the DA constantly picks at people of color who don't necessarily stand with what they say all the time. Lindy Amazibugo, there's Mbali Nturi as well. So many people who sometimes stand up against the majority white thoughts the majority white capitalism or the liberal ideology that pushes the da they tend to totally go against them so i'm not really surprised at all ricardo you understand more or less what's happening in terms of the politics of the da based on our previous podcast does this really give a good reflection on liberalism the way you understand it, considering that this is a party that prides itself on liberal values. Not at all. And you know, um, and, and everyone else, I think this speaks more of what's wrong with party politics. It's not really about a group of people with have a core set of values looking to push an agenda. It's groupthink. It's, hey, how dare you? go to that memorial you need to do what we tell you to do if you're not falling in if you're not with us you're against us um pauline should we really be affording that much sympathy to her i mean there are corruption allegations leveled against her and historically she's known to be a flip-flopper she has been part of a pan-africanist movement she has made her own party as she moved slowly but surely towards whiteness and eventually she served a white party how much sympathy if any should we afford her none none whatsoever she flip-flops she's not consistent and she just falls in 
wherever and whenever she likes. Do you agree with that, Andy Siwe? I get what Pauline is saying. I agree with it mostly, but deep down inside, I don't know, maybe because she's a woman of color and there's some sort of kinship that I feel towards her that I feel a bit sympathetic, but I do agree to a certain extent that she's not really been genuine to who she is. And to a certain extent, you think, yes, it serves you right for actually going in that direction. Isaac, what are your thoughts? For, for someone to go from Pan-African to I'm um, forming my own party to full-on liberal white party, I think this shows that she had a shift in ideology during her, her political career right and it was advantageous for her to to score because it got her to be mayor of cape town ricardo how would you say we should respond as black people to people that mm-hmm. go through a period of self-hate or self-loathing <laughs> and all of a sudden they can then remember that oh i've got my people and chances mm-hmm. are if i play this card they will definitely right. support me essentially i will appeal right. to the ubuntu as it were right. yeah uh, i i i'm not black until i need black people kind of thing um <laughs> mm. um you know i find it hard to just me personally my my, my moral code I don't like flip-flopping. I don't like people who have wavering ideologies. Either you are or you aren't in many instances, right? But I'm going to kind of turn the question on its head. Let's say that Patricia DeLille was not a black woman or a colored woman, right? A woman of color. Let's say she was a white male. Isn't it possible that we would be sitting here, or not necessarily us, but other people would say, Look at her. She's a, a a political animal. She's aggressive. She she's not willing. She doesn't uh, subscribe to natural to conventional norms of politics. She's willing to go here and there to get a deal done. So do we treat her more harshly because she's black and we feel that she didn't meet our best interests? And you see, what do you think? There's truth in that because it's a female we are more likely to criticize her. Especially if you consider that someone like Julius Malema created the EFF yeah. and now there's a lot of praise about it, yet we look unfavorably upon Patricia Delow. Yeah, I think Ricardo made the perfect point. I do agree with what he's saying. And maybe that is part of the reason I do sympathize with her. Maybe I just didn't have the words to explain it. But yeah, I, it, it, it is that. I mean, Julius Malema went from plundering Limpopo. Limpopo wasn't dead because of Julius Malema. And now he's telling us the people first. And we're buying it and we're here and we're screaming and we're loving it. You know what I mean? That brings us to the end of this week's show. Thank you for listening. Please remember that you can drop us a comment on our Facebook page. 
the thinking behind it all or you can follow us on twitter at ttbia underscore at ttbia underscore please tell us where we can improve tell us how much you love us of course and uh, thank you to the team thank you to our new member Andy Siwe for joining us thank you to Isaac thank you to Ricardo and thank you to Pauline until we meet next week Mm